Psalm 19 is our first scripture reading. I'm also going to read from Romans chapter 1. So there are two pages listed, 858 and 1747, if you'd like to follow along with the Pew Bible in front of you. We have started going through the Belgic Confession of Faith, and normally we do that in the evenings, and I figured we would go through Article 2 in the mornings. It's going to take about four weeks, and uh, so we will consider that today. I'm going to read Psalm 19, Romans 1, and then I'll read for us uh, Article 2 of the Belgic Confession. We won't read it together this morning Uh, But uh, I'll read it for us, and that's on page 70 if you'd like to follow along in the back of, of the blue hymnal. This is Psalm 19, God's word given to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, found on page 1747. This is the letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul, considering the knowledge of God as it goes throughout the world, as people look around and see the world that God has created. The Apostle says this, Beginning in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. The teaching from the confession that we're considering today is Article 2. And Article 2 says, By what means God is made known unto us? And it says, We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, that is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and for our salvation. In my short time as pastor, one thing I've begun to notice is how important it is not only to teach the word of God, but how important it is to teach what it is that we believe about the word of God. Most of us Uh, can tell stories illustrating how important God's Word is to us. Many of us can even tell stories, perhaps, about particular Bibles that are very important to us. I remember being in sixth grade, uh, just down the street here at uh, Village Free Church, right on the corner there, and uh, I... When I came to church, I I carried a a children's Bible. That was the Bible that was given to me when I was in second or third grade. And uh, it was was a good Bible, but it it didn't make me feel like one of the big kids. And so at that church, when you graduated from eighth grade, uh, you were given a nice, big, blue NIV study Bible, red letter edition and all the study notes, a beautiful a beautiful volume. And uh, when the church would order these, it happened one, one time that the, the church received one that had been printed upside down. And so they didn't want to give that to one of the graduates. The binding was upside down on it. So it was sitting in the office for a while. And as the pastor's kid, I tended to spend a lot of time in, in the office. And I began asking around what was going to happen with this nice blue printed upside down NIV study Bible. I was persistent enough to where it came to be in my possession and it came to be my own. So then in sixth grade, I was walking around the church with a ninth grade Bible and of course no one could equal the wisdom I had in my Sunday school answers from that time forward because I had the study notes right in, in front of me. I loved that Bible. I loved it for it being printed upside down. I loved all the work I had to put into getting it, getting it perhaps three years early, but I loved it. Nonetheless, we treasure not only our Bibles, but we treasure God's word when we see that it is from him and how important it is for our lives. But non-believers don't think about God's word that way. They, they say things like, how can you put so much faith in stock in a book? It's just something that someone has written at some point. 
So to that point, I thought it would be appropriate in the next few weeks to consider this Article 2 of the Belgian Confession and consider what God's Word claims for itself that we might be trained and built up exactly in what God says. So we do that unto a couple of different ends. This is my hope over the next few weeks that we would further establish our conviction about Scripture, our conviction about Scripture that it would be that it is God's Word and that we would believe it to be such, that we would deepen our confidence in Scripture. If it's God's Word, and it's God's Word that He has given to us, we ought to be confident that what He tells us in it is exactly what He wants to say. That we would seek a proper curiosity about Scripture. It's God's Word, so what does it say on each and every page? And giving ourselves to knowing, to knowing that. And that we would grow in our commitment to Scripture. Conviction, confidence, curiosity, commitment. Behind all of that, what we're going to see over and over and over again is that it is only those whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit who come to have these kinds of beliefs about the Word of God, about Scripture. And that's okay. That's okay. Understanding that God's truth is going to come uh, to someone and He is going to open their eyes by the power of the Spirit. And it's okay for us to know and to hold to and to cling to that because in it we trust that the Holy Spirit is working in and through us. So in all of these things, the Holy Spirit would lead, lead us on into the eternal truth of God. All of this flows out of a central conviction that God speaks truth. And that his word contains eternal truth. It's interesting in the last oh, 18 months or so maybe. There has been this impassioned return to the truth. This was a, an advertisement in last Sunday's New York Times. It said this. The truth has power. The truth will not be threatened. The truth has a voice. And right underneath that. The New York Times. As if they are the, now the voice for truth. But we should applaud and, and be happy that there's this impassioned return for truth. But the question is, is anyone going to consider what God has said about the truth? You know, something that's curious about this impassioned return to truth. It, it always seems to crop up around a couple of these silly award shows that happen in Hollywood. The newspapers tend to talk about truth right as these things are going on. For instance, last April, there was another advertisement that said this, the truth is hard to know. The truth is hard. The truth is more important than ever. The truth is more important than ever. I guess as Christians, we should say that the truth has never been more important than right now. But we should also say what? The truth has never been less important than right now. Since the creation of the world, what has been most important is to know and to believe the truth. In order to know sufficiently the truth of God and how he saves us, what do we need? We don't need the words of men. We need the word of God. We need his word. We need the Bible. Psalm 19 is a beautiful, in multiple ways, a heavenly song, which teaches us that nature is before our eyes as a book. And it is a book that conveys true things about God. Psalm 19 opens by speaking of two different preachers, if you will, the heavens and the skies. It has been said that no poem ever contained a finer argument against atheism than Psalm 19. 
And uh, whoever said that, said that because the truth, the information that is conveyed about the truth of God in the book of nature reaches everyone. It is a universally published work. And it is true because as everyone on earth looks upwards, what do they see? They see the heavens. They see the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. Here is our first preacher. This is a universal disclosure of information. Everyone lives and breathes and eats and sleeps under the same heavens. The second line is an explanation of the first, but a different word is used. Skies. In older translations, this was translated as firmament or uh, expanse. And these two words together, skies and heavens, they also occur in the early stages of Genesis 1. So this psalm, in a sense, brings us back to that, create, that great creation event when God spoke all things into existence at the beginning of this universe. To have experienced that as it happened, right? To be a fly on the wall of God's creating this world, all things visible and invisible, that would be a glory beyond which we could ever consider. But the heavens and the skies, in a sense, carry that same message forward. Not with the same intensity of that moment, but the same truth. And they proclaim a message to us, and the the message they proclaim is very simple. God, the God of the Bible, is the only God, and he is eternally powerful. That's what the book of nature tells us. God is the only God, and he is eternally powerful. The words of Psalm 19, in a sense, return us to the words of Psalm 8, don't they? Where the psalmist there says, When I look into your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I say to myself, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The heavens ought to humble us. Great reformer theologian, our hero John Calvin, pointed out uh, four things, four things that furnish us with an evident proof of God's creation and his providence His providential care, four things as we consider the heavens. Their arrangement, their variety, their beauty, and their splendor. We look up into the heavens, we see the way God has arranged them. The variety of the heavenly bodies, their beauty, and their splendor. Verse 3 tells us that this book is, as I said earlier, universally published. It goes out to everyone. Verse 3 reads in our Bibles, There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. No, we're not talking about a, a literal voice here, vibrating vocal cords with a voice box, but this message is going out. It is going forward even to the ends of the earth. In other words, this is not hindered by language barriers. If you wanted to go into all of the world and to say, The God of the Bible is the only God, and He is eternally powerful, you would have to oscillate from one language to the next, to the next, to thousands upon thousands of language. But the heavens and the skies, what do they do? They speak a common tongue, if you will. Everyone is able to read this book, this book of nature. In other words, the glory of God, the power of God, is written in big, bright font. It's not written in small, obscure Letters, letters like on the warning labels of things. Sometimes if you read the fine print, you realize, oh, some of this information is in small print because maybe they don't want this information to be as well known. But that's not the glory of God and the power of God in the book of nature. It's written in big, bright font. 
Speaking of the brightest, the psalmist points to the sun as his evident proof of the glory of God. He looks up into the heavens and he finds the most glorious thing in all of the heavens, the sun. And he has three reasons for why the sun uh, is so majestic and points us to the glory of God. The first is the sun's majesty and appearance. It says it's like a, a bridegroom coming forth out of his pavilion. The sun's swiftness in its course as it goes from one end of the sky to the other. It is like a champion runner. When, when you watch the, the Olympics or running events, most people are, are most interested in that, that shortest of all the races, the 100-meter the dash, because whoever wins that race, even though it's the, the, the shortest event, under 10 seconds, whoever wins that race is the fastest on, uh, on all of the earth. The sun's majesty and appearance, swiftness in its course, the astonishing power of its heat. Think about something that's 93 million miles away and it's able to warm the entire earth and able to warm the earth enough so that its temperatures can rise to where it's actually dangerous for us. It's an astounding, an astounding heavenly body with incomprehensible power. When we consider the sun and we consider all of the heavens, this is a clear testament to God's glory. And it's not just just the heavens, is it? It's everything from telescope to microscope, from the big to the small. The human being is a page of this book of nature. The human eye is a page of this book of nature, God's arrangement, his variety, the beauty and the splendor which he has endowed in and through all of this world. What are we doing when we consider all of these things? Aren't we coming back to the book of nature with enlightened eyes, having been given knowledge by the Holy Spirit of the goodness of God and how much he cares for us. See, we're considering the book of nature from the other side, having trusted in Christ. We're coming back to the word of God and reading about what this book of nature does. And so if we're coming back at it, look at it from, from that vantage point, what about people who read this book of nature without that enlightening of the Holy Spirit, without going to the clearer word of Scripture first? Well, that brings us to consider Romans chapter 1, which shows us what happens when people of the earth, non-believers, read the book of nature, which is so clearly placed in front of them. Quite simply, what happens is they misunderstand the book. They misunderstand the book. They twist its message. They end up in the wrong place. The problem is not with the book of nature. The problem lies somewhere else. The problem lies with their sin. You know, I, I spend uh, time reading books, and when I really like a book, sometimes I'll go back to the Amazon.com page of that book and read the reviews of what other people are saying about it. And to my great shock and horror, sometimes when I really like a book, I will find that there are people that really don't like that same book. And sometimes I'll go and read those critical reviews and I'll read it and say, ah, they have misunderstood the book. They've misunderstood the book. The problem didn't lie with the book. The problem is with their understanding. And this is what happens when human beings read the book of nature. They misunderstand it. The book proclaims and it teaches truth, but the corruption of sin gets in the way. Psalm 19 
presents the book of nature to us as something proclaimed by the heavens and the skies, something that is written and universally published. Well, in that sense, we need to think about ourselves as human beings as having sin-corrupted eyes and ears that twist and mangle this message, which cloud our vision from seeing the truth clearly. We read one of our great reformers who says, God shows there's a seed of religion in all men, but scarcely one man in a hundred is met with who fosters this correctly, and none in whom it ripens. See, if we try to arrive at the right picture of God from our human reason, what do we do? We construct uh, idols in our hearts. We read in Romans 1 that men suppress the truth. The word for suppress, it can also mean hold back. It's like if you, you, an inflated ball that wants to float above water, if you push it down, you want to keep it underneath. Or holding it back, holding it back, walking a, a young, excited puppy who's growing in strength, lunging forward, and you hold them back. This is what the corruption of sin does to the book of nature. It holds down its truth. It holds back its truth. The truth of God lunges forward uh, at all of mankind. But the sin, the wickedness of men restrains uh, that truth. What we see is that worship becomes misdirected when men try to arrive at an idea of God through their own reason. They read this book of nature and worship becomes misdirected so that they construct idols in their hearts, in their minds, even in their lives. Right? They construct idols of wood and stone. Ideas of God where uh, they are made to look like mortal man or even animals. When we try to know God through our reason, we end up in a labyrinth of errors. It's everywhere we turn, we have another wrong idea. This is why even after we know God in Christ, even after the Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, it's so important for us to construct our knowledge of God based upon His Word and not based upon our own ideas. So we ask, what is this about the wrath of God being revealed in Romans chapter 1? When God sees the habit of man and his misdirected worship to twist this book of nature and arrive in a wrong place. What he does is he gives them over into the sinful desires of their hearts. So the, the tangible evidence of the wrath of God in today's world is that we see human beings who are living in unlawful ways according to what God has commanded and doing so seemingly without remorse. It's tangible evidence of the wrath of God. Blissful blindness that keeps so many ignorant of the true God. So where does this leave us as we consider all of this today? Two things, I think. The first is that we need to be thankful for the gospel. Thankful for the gospel. Because as we consider what Psalm 19 says and Romans 1 says, all of us are uh, in our natural state going to be those people who take read this book of nature which is presented to us, universally published, we twist and we mangle it into false ideas and idolatry about God. Uh, and so we need to be thankful of what Paul says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation, which overcomes human weakness, which overcomes human incapability to read this book of nature. The, the world is darkened by sin, but the light of the gospel shines into that darkness and it pierces it. And that highlights the second thing. Uh, that we 
conclude from considering these two passages together. The second thing is that that gospel, the power of God to know and to see God rightly, is rooted in his word, in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Yes, generally speaking, the the, the message of the gospel is carried throughout the world by uh, proclaiming, by preaching, proclamation, but... Preaching, proclamation always must be completely rooted and must never leave the word of God. It must be an opening up of that infallible word which God has given in his written word. What we need is the Bible. We need the Bible. The Bible, Holy Scripture, is necessary. In the book of 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter says that he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the voice of God uh, declaring to him that this is the Son of God to listen to to him. Peter says that uh, even more certain than his verbal account of that event is the written word of God, which he inspires through his Holy Spirit. He says this, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark, dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, some people wonder, believe in God, believe in Jesus. Why do you think that God gave his truth, as you say, in his written word? It seems like God, some people might say, it seems like God is limiting himself by doing that. And the Bible remains so susceptible to all kinds of of critiques and uh, all kinds of evaluation. That's getting exactly the wrong idea. God has given us his written word, his infallible will, his perfect and eternal truth in the written word uh, so that the people of God might be taught and the church might be established with a consistent message and authority. It was for the greater comfort of the church, as, the, as our Reformed confessions say. It was for the better preserving and the proclaiming of the truth that the same message might be copied down and brought even to the very ends of the earth and that the church might be taught with an absolute and a perfect consistency and that the gospel might be Proclaimed. This establishes the necessity of the Bible. It shows the authority of God's holy word. And we remind ourselves this morning that because of our sin, we need the Bible. If we would be saved and if we would know God in that saving way, we need uh, the written word. This book of nature that Psalm 19 talks about is insufficient to communicate uh, the gospel to us. It proclaims the glory of God, truly. It shows his power, truly, but our sin-corrupted ears twist and mangle it. We read that it leaves men without excuse. It leaves them accountable. But although it leaves men without excuse, it does not leave them without blame. In fact, it establishes blame and points to the need of a clearer word. Of a clearer word. So then, as we close, I'd like to just show... Uh, very quickly looking at a couple of these phrases in the second half of Psalm 19 to show how Psalm 19 brings out the clearer word of Scripture. We read, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. When we see law 
in the Bible, it can refer to a couple of things. It can refer to the Ten Commandments. It can refer to all the rules of the covenant with Moses. Or it can refer more generally to all of the teaching of uh, the covenant teaching of the Old Testament as Israel would have understood it. And that is what we have here. The law which distinguishes Israel from the rest of the world, in which God has made them his people. This is what David means. All of the life of purity and godliness, which is taught to God's people in his word, is life-giving to the soul. David is not saying that the commandments of God are what convert us. Only the promises of God can do that by the power of the Spirit. But all which is contained in the covenant life of God's people, it repairs that which is broken. It leads them on the pathway of life. Consider the next phrase. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The word for simple is a word that means young and impressionable and perhaps naive. And that doesn't mean that the Bible is only suited to teach those who are young and impressionable. What it means is that all of us, as we come to God's word, ought to adopt that posture. That we are to be like someone young, teachable, impressionable, understanding that this is God, our Father, speaking to us in his word. We do not read down upon God's word, we read up. To it. The preacher does not preach from in front of God's word, he preaches from behind it. This is our source of life, and this is exactly what we need. We need God's word. Only this can give us God's truth uh, unto our salvation. As we read the rest of the psalm, you see that proper posture put on display. What does God say? That is what's perfect. That is what is right. That is what is sufficient. The, The book of the clear word, the scriptures, is where we must. Turn. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? If we would have life, if we would have spiritual life, if we would have life abundant, as Jesus says, we would give ourselves to this word. In God's word, he is made known to us rightly. In God's word, we come to know ourselves more fully. We read, Who can discern his errors? The Bible searches us and it shows that we have hidden faults that even we didn't know we had. The Bible searches us. It makes us more fully known even to ourselves. So the psalm ends by saying, May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Why? Why does it end that way? May the words of my mouth be pleasing. Because it's not a done deal that the words of our mouths would be pleasing. The desire of our hearts ought to be that we would speak rightly of God as it's rooted in his word. That we would only speak the truth of God as it's taught to us in the word of God. That we would think God's thoughts after him. The meditations of our hearts that even what we hold within ourselves as we contemplate and think about God. That that would accord with his word. And all these things we see again and again and again. The Bible, God's word, is necessary to know God to grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him and that our life in Christ must ever be rooted always, always in this holy and inspired word. The beautiful thing about all of the Reformed confessions came out of the Reformation is that they all together confess this truth. The rule of faith is scripture and those creeds and confessions that we love and cherish so dearly because what, and why do we cherish them that way? Because we believe that they are accurate representations of what God has revealed in his word. 
and we trust it. So that we grow in our conviction, uh, we, in our confidence of God's word, our commitment to it, to be curious about what does God say on each and every page. This is the word which he has given to us. It is necessary. And we know that in all of these things, we're confessing that we need God to give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we might understand it more and more. We read this from Martin Luther. The word comes first, and with the word the Spirit breathes upon my heart so that I believe. As we give ourselves to the word, we know that the Spirit is working there always to implant it in our hearts and to give us greater understanding. Holy Scripture is necessary. Let us give ourselves to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and that you have given us your word. May we look to it and trust in it. May we take it as our rule of faith, our authority. We praise you and we thank you that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us and that we can, we can trust you as a good God and may you glorify yourself in and through us. May we love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go to number 28 in our blue hymnals.